you're completely awake when they're putting the pacemaker in. You're not even asleep. Oh, my gosh. So I'm, I'm watching it on a monitor. I'm watching them. They're sending it in these little probes, and the guy is saying he's, he's got the guy that sells it to him and the doctor that's putting it in, okay? And they're talking to one another. I can hear them over there talking. So go right, go right, go right. Too far, go back. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Stick it, stick it. <laughs> and it's got a little probe with a screw on the end. He said, okay, turn it, turn it, turn the screw. <laughs> so I'm going, whoa, I should be asleep right now. <laughs> you had that Sunday school series yeah, you did right, right, with right, right. near-death experiences and right. fear and all that stuff. Right. And I wasn't able to be there for most of those. I've heard a couple of your stories just over the years, but I know you've got way more near-death experiences than I've heard. So, Well, th- this all happened when I was in the hospital. And uh, there was two things that were kind of cool that happened while I was recovering there for about a week. Uh, and this was one. The other one was uh, we, I knew that uh, I was going to do the play Prometheus Bound. Okay. okay, so I had a copy of it. I was kind of reading through it, and it was amazing because it was like newspaper headlines. It was written 500 years before Christ. Oh, but, I didn't know that. But there is a scene in there where you hear from a woman who has been sexually abused. You know, so there's there was there was abuse abuse of justice and power, but also also the sexual abuse going on. So I mean. And I had been years since I'd read the play. The reason I picked the play I had on my bucket list to be able to do is that I read it when I was in college. And you're reading along, and there's a scene right near the end of the play where this messenger from the god called Hermes comes down. And he's not necessarily a nice guy, but he tells uh, Prometheus, who, you know, if you know anything about Prometheus, he's chained to a rock. Right. For eternity, and a liver, an eagle comes and eats his liver every day. Right. Okay. So it's you know not a not a good right. place. So <laughs> uh, so but but the reason I got fascinated with the play, Hermes comes to him and tells him that he will be bound on the rock forever for eternity unless a god from heaven were to come down in human form and take his place on the rock. Oh wow! This and is that written five hundred years before Christ. Is that the oldest play? No, it's Ever. one of the oldest because he was okay. the, he's the one playwright that's yeah. the oldest playwright that, yeah. that they know of. So, and uh, yeah, they only have thirty nine Greek plays that survived. Hmm. That's I didn't it. know that. So. Well, you just let off with me getting chill bumps. So, <laughs> I know, I know. That, that, I mean, that yeah. blew my mind when I read that when I was in college. I hadn't been a Christian very long. I read this thing. I'm going, wow. Okay. You know, so, so I knew I always wanted to do the play, and uh, and then and then when I rediscovered it. I got into the uh, the sexual abuse big time, and that was as blatantly fresh as it could possibly be in the play. It was yeah. overwhelmingly fresh. But uh, but the uh, while I was doing that, my daughter sent me this blues CD of this kind of young blues artist, and so I was reading Prometheus, <laughs> listening to the blues. Hey, reading Prometheus, listening to the blues. I'm going. You know, Prometheus probably understood the blues better than anybody on the planet, maybe of all time. <laughs> yeah. So, especially when the liver starts, yeah, when, exactly. when the ego starts chipping away at right. your liver. You know, yeah. so, and then he starts you know, thinking about tomorrow's liver being taken right, out. Right, right. And, and it's on and on and on. Yeah. It never ends. So, I kind of got this vision a little bit of uh, how can I incorporate 
Prometheus Bound with the blues. Wow. And so there's a guy that I know in town called Steve Patterson, who would be another interesting guy for y'all to get. He's mm. he's a, a member of AA, but also he's probably the best blues guitar player in West Tennessee. Okay. I mean, he can really play. What is AA? Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. So he's yeah. he's been through a struggle. Okay. Was okay. he was he one of the people in that band that you had help with Cotton Patch Gospel? No. Okay. He was not. Okay. No. He's not part of the Plexural Society. Okay. So, yeah. he's electric blue. That's a fun was, group. Yeah, they're fun. They're a lot of fun. But in, anyway, uh, I contacted him and he said, yeah, I'll come. And what he did, he came and ad-libbed the play live every night. Oh. Well, so all the background music and everything. And we got to wear in rehearsal that that he just understood the character so well. Each character had their own different blues rift when they came on stage. Wow, wow, wow. And it was just so much fun. That's and then I also, you know, I'm talking to uh, Melinda Eckley, who's an art teacher here, and I'm kind of throwing, throwing my concept out to her to see if, because uh, I was interested in maybe getting some uh, blues posters that would be, introduce each character. For her master's degree, she researched 20s and 30s blues music. And for her for her art project, she designed all these incredible posters, oh, wow. <laughs> blues posters. <laughs> so it's like, it like divine intervention yeah. <laughs> here. So we were kind of going. And so her class, she got her class to do. And so they, they came up with these incredible posters with each character. And, uh, and so that we were able to project those images. And we set the play in the south on a pier in the middle of a swamp and so and, and set it in the 30s wow. so so you just had these is it still an eagle eating a liver or is it that doesn't different? actually happen it it the play ends as zeus is just coming down on him it's thunder and lightning and flashing and just loud blasting man we had the blues going like crazy i mean just wild okay and then that's where the play just uh, and that's right before prometheus gets bound he's already bound he's oh. bound in the very first scene okay so he the actor has to stay bound the whole time okay the play. it's and like we, the we start of left. his punishment yeah, that's where yeah, it all yeah, that's where it yeah, starts. Yeah. And because uh, it's Hermes that comes and says that not only are you going to be bound, but guess what? Starting tomorrow, an eagle is going to come. So, so that makes Hermes not necessarily a good guy. Right. He's trying to get him to relent. Okay. And, uh, but uh, we we did a kind of interesting thing because we had an intermission in the play, and I left uh, Jake Bills played Prometheus. I left him chained out there for the whole intermission. Mm, I remember and, that. And then some sea nymphs who were the chorus, off all female chorus. They, I had a couple of them come and minister to him and bring him water and stuff like that. So during just, the intermission, yeah, yeah, during the intermission. Wow. So there's outside a in the on. lobby, or no, no, this is on the, stage. Okay, so, and, uh, that as someone who's not you know well versed in acting, that seems like it would be a really hard role to play because you can't you can't right. hide behind acting normal right you know some people can just fill their role with some normal behavior throughout the line so at least you you know have a little bit to fall back on he didn't have that luxury because he's tied there the whole time and it's this super dramatic performance from start to finish right and plus he's the other thing that's interesting about the play is it's written in not necessarily iambic pentameter but it's written in verse okay and so you're dealing with that as well kind of like a shakespeare play yeah and uh so uh it's it, and I mean he he carries a lot. The second biggest part is this character called Io, and she's the one who's been sexually abused by Zeus, and he's he has turned her into a cow, 
So she has cow horns coming out of her head. So, and it's just for me, it's just you know how tragic a, a, a person in power takes takes uh, ab- you know abuses this woman, takes advantage of her, and then just turns her into an animal. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what what was happening in that. It's yeah. just, and and Nicole Snowfer played that role. She was fantastic. It's the best role she's done at Union since she's been here. And uh, she just we just had a lot of time to talk about it and really get into it. And she just jumped into it, hook, line, and sinker. Man. So, uh, tender play. You know, so a lot of fun to do. But boy, uh, Steve Patterson basically. Stole the show over there with, with the, the blues with yeah. the guitar. It was just fantastic. He didn't even. He just used a regular guitar. We didn't even have it mic'd. He was so okay. good. So and uh, his timing was just perfect. You yeah. Know, so and uh, so it's fun. So, That's great. Man. So anyway, so you started that story by saying you. Yeah, had... there were two things. The other, the other thing that happened was uh, that's the that's the one thing that happened, which I thought was really amazing. But the other thing is, I felt like God was kind of encouraging me to chronicle all of my near-death experiences because this was one that I'd just gone through. And um, Explain and, that a little bit for those that, for those that are listening. What, what is the, the last near-death experience that you had? Uh, and, yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out for a walk uh, around noon or something like that, and I, uh, I get about, I don't know, a couple of football fields away from the school, and man, my stomach was as hard as a rock. I mean, it was just like, and my my heart was just pounding like crazy. I knew something bad was happening. Everybody's gone. My wife was in California, so I was on my own. So I kind of stumbled back in to the theater and laid down on the couch for a while, thinking I'd just rest for a minute. And uh, and but at the same time, I call. I tried to call my doctor. Just got voicemail. Oh, and, no. uh and so I laid there, and I felt a little bit better about it. I actually went back to work because we were building a set, so I went back to work for about two hours, and then kind of started <laughs> up again. So, so at that point, though, my doctor called and said, look, we've got – you can come to convenient care. I mean, I have a doctor waiting for you right now. You need to get over here as quick as you could. So I drove over to convenient care in, uh, in North Jackson here, and the doctor was waiting for there, and she hooked me up to a machine immediately, and she said – she basically said, unless you ran a marathon to get over here, you need to be in the hospital right now. No way. <laughs> so, so she said, we have an ambulance waiting for you. Oh, my gosh. So, Tell her uh, you had been doing construction for two hours? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going, whoa, okay. So I'm, I'm now, the, they're hooked me up to the machines. I'm laying in the ambulance. Well, it goes back. I mean, I just started praying, but it goes back to a moment that happened to me when I was back in 1969, when I had a my, one of my other near-death experiences where I had kind of a, a, a drug overdose and had a, a vision of death, and death was just coming. I could see this kind of shady, ghastly ghostly figure coming at my face and uh, all of a sudden just dissipated when he got when it got near my face because okay. someone was basically I, I had I had jumped head first through a two-story glass window you know just dove out and a guy caught me by the ankle oh my god and pulled me back into the house saved my life basically mm-hmm. but when I was laying in the hospital in the ambulance they turned off all the lights when anything else they could do for me were trying to get to the hospital and while I'm laying there in the dark, that same image 
that death image started coming right to my face wow. again. And I just started praying. And just I just started giving my life over to God. I gave him my family. I gave him my work. I just gave him everything. And I was just said, I'm ready to go. When Is this I, like a slow moving It's just coming you? out. Right, you know, just at the, about this rate right here, I would say, okay. you know, just somewhat not slow, but not fast either. And it got about right to my face and just... Uh, just this kind of it just dissipated again mm. and the peace came over and I knew at that moment I was going to be okay no matter what happened if I died I was going to be okay if I lived I was going to be okay I was okay I mean if so so I had all my fear was gone at that moment I had mm. no fear whatsoever I was just just waiting and they they couldn't really do anything with me until in the hospital until they got my heart rate down it was at like 175 or something like that so it was um, so it took it took that was on Friday afternoon they were finally able to do something by Sunday morning it took it took all wow. all night Friday night and all day Saturday to kind of get it settled down no so, way so that they could do a, a catheterization and look and see what the problem was but uh, and that's when they found blockage you know they found uh, so you were well, having a heart attack I was ha- they didn't call it a heart attack they were calling it arrhythmia okay so it's like a heart failure but not a heart attack and, what's uh, the, what's the difference between the two I guess a heart attack is where something like your your uh, your uh, blood flow to your heart stops okay. I was still getting blood flow to my heart it was just out of control and it what it would happen on all day Saturday it would go down to 40 and then go up to 175 <laughs> it was oh, just right. going back it was just erratic <laughs> just going crazy they were they were going crazy they didn't know what to do with it so they were just they were just trying to give me all kind of medicine to just get it calm down so uh so they never said i had a heart attack but once they did the catheterization on uh i guess saturday evening or something they saw that i had 70 percent blockage in my widowmaker vein Mm -hmm. and uh, so he said you need to do we need to do surgery right away so by then charlotte was back sunday morning and they did the surgery on sunday morning Mm -hmm. and uh and that's kind of a crazy thing in itself you know because i I mean to go through that because what you know it's they did double open heart double bypass surgery and so you know that's where they just split your sternum in half open up your chest cavity okay <laughs> so, this is pretty brutal yeah they and they hook you they have it. you hooked up to a machine that's your heart and your lungs at this point okay then they take a bucket of ice and they dump it on your chest to freeze <laughs> your heart <laughs> so, so then your heart gets frozen they take your heart out of your body they fix it <laughs> And then they put it back. <laughs> so, I'll tell you, it's a good thing you're not a doctor trying to explain this to you. <laughs> this is insane. So, I mean, I, didn't, I had no idea what, that, what, what they did. So it's just like, okay, you had my heart in your hands and you're fooling <laughs> so, so, while it's frozen stiff. <laughs> so, so, and I'm still alive. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so he explains to you afterwards, we took a bucket of ice. <laughs> he basically, I said, look, you just tell me in layman terms what you right, actually did right. to me. So he said, well, we, it's just, we do it everybody that needs open heart surgery. And that's where they, you know, that's when they sew you up, you get that nice zipper. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It runs from about here on up. Oh, my you know, gosh. And, um, so... Uh, it's crazy because then they, the two probes are they're they're going in right here. All right, two probes that go to your to your heart and lungs so that they can you know get them hooked up to a machine. 
they leave those wires hanging out there so you, until you recover. And then so you're, you're laying in a hospital and the nurse comes in finally and says, this will only take a second. He grabs those wires and just yanks them out of your body. So, you're screaming at this point. So, 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 so. He says, we don't tell anybody what we're going to do. We just do it as fast as we can because we know if we tell them in advance, they will freak out. No so, 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 so. Oh, my. And this is after they've sewed you up. They this is just... after you're sewed up. You just have two wires just hanging there. You know, <laughs> just you know. yank them out. So, they just yank them right out as oh, fast. Man. Just zip them right out. So, so what, what can you do now? You, do you still go on your walks? Yeah, yeah, I can still, do. I, I, I'm now walks. free to do anything I want. Okay. So, but I, but see, about uh, let's see, that was in March, and I went back to the doctor for another checkup on in August, and my heart still was not doing what it was supposed to be doing, and so they put a pacemaker in. Okay. Which, which it's right here. It's about you can see the size of this thing. It's oh, huge. Wow. It's about that big around. Can you feel it, or do you just notice it? Oh, yeah, I feel it, it constantly. Yeah. yeah, you're aware that it's there. But it also has a defibrillator built into it. So if I if I start having a heart attack, it'll start shocking me. You know, so shocking okay. me back to life. Yeah, I told my students when I came back, I said, <laughs> if I fall on the ground and start writhing, right. it's just the defibrillator. <laughs> <laughs> just call 911. <laughs> That's the most recent that's the most recent thing, and that. Yeah. But once I got through the rehab on it, uh, I'm, I'm pretty well free to do whatever I want. Yeah, and uh, and, and I and I'm I'm working out like a madman. So I've lost almost forty pounds. Oh, really? Wow, else. I didn't realize that. And so, and, uh, how long has the recovery process taken from from surgery until okay? I'm pretty normal now. I would say a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Especially having put the pacemaker right. back into you. Right. And that, you're completely awake when they're putting the pacemaker in. You're not even asleep. Oh, my gosh. So I'm, I'm watching it on a monitor. I'm watching them. They're sending it in these little probes, and the guy is saying he's, he's got the guy that sells it to him and the doctor that's putting it in, okay? And they're talking to one another. I can hear them over there talking. So go right, go right, go right. Too far. Go back. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Stick it. Stick it. <laughs> and it's got a little probe with a screw on the end. He said, okay, turn it, turn it, turn the screw. <laughs> I'm going, whoa, I should be asleep right now. But <laughs> then turns watching off to the side. I'm watching it on a monitor. I'm watching. My, I'm watching this little screw go into my heart, and I have to do three of them. You know, they're screwing in three different places. So, you know, you so. sit there and you start seeing your heart beat faster and faster. Yeah. faster. So, well, because then it takes it takes a while. You have to be very careful for about three months till those things really see they become part of your heart. So, mm-hmm. and so now the the this heart this pacemaker lasts about nine years it has a nine year battery life so after nine years i'll have to go in and they'll have to cut it out take this out but all all they have to is just plug it back in mm-hmm. so you know so it's not it's not a major deal so. wow. but he said it it could add 20 years to my life so wow so well i'll knows? take that yeah i'll take that i'll that take would, one right now that would put me at 90 something so it's not too bad so, yeah yeah you know so anyway, that was that was my other thing of learning that, I mean, to get to a place, this is amazing to me, to get to a place where you're looking death in the face and you're completely at peace. You have no fear whatsoever. Could you talk more about 
what that's like seeing that sort of vision? Because you said you had it twice. Mm-hmm. Was it exactly the same both times? Same exact same vision. Okay, and so, so so it looks like just this kind of distorted. Yeah, what happened the first time that it happened? You know, it, it, I'd taken some chemical. I don't know whether it was LSD or psilocybin. I don't know what it was, but it was a pretty potent. And uh, we were in this. We were. I was in college. And we were living in this two-story fourplex, an old mansion that they turned into an apartment building. How old did you say you were? I was 19. Okay. You know, or 20, I can't remember exactly. But, uh, but anyway, so as the, as the trip kept going, uh, I took it with a friend of mine. And uh, I just, I started, you started hallucinating, and I started thinking that I could fly, that I was beyond gravity. Wow. And, uh, and that, you know, that if I went through the window, I would just keep going. And, uh, and then I had no need for clothes. I was completely naked. So, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so at some point, I mean, I can't remember the conversation that's going on, but some, at some point I tell him that, watch this. Okay. Know, watch me fly. And uh, he was stoned out too, but but he he had been more experienced, I guess. Mm-hmm. So knew how to handle the drugs a little bit more. I was he was, was at least able to catch you. Well, he leaped. Uh, he he. When I went through, he leaped and grabbed me by the ankle, one ankle. I slammed into the. I went. Th- you know, I went through the window. And it was a, a wooden frame window, so yeah. so it just shattered, and uh, I've got scars. Where sure. where my hands went wow. through, and then I got a scar across here where I, where I had to go get stitches. But uh, and he he cut his wrists open, and had to get stitches as well. But he when, when I, I just remember slamming against the side of the house mm. and looking down and, uh, and down at the, I could see the ground below me, and I could see the broken glass and the broken wooden frame, and and all of a sudden out of that frame comes this image, and it was like like a gas almost. Okay. Like a floating gas, gray, black, just starts coming right at my face. <clears throat> and I just knew I was dead. I was, I was dead. Mm-hmm. And about the time it got close to my face again, I felt myself being pulled back into the room. And that's what rescued you from the death yeah, there. Yeah. And he, he was doing, and we, we were, we're still good friends. Uh, his name is Derek. He lives up in Idaho. This, this took place in Texas, so. Uh, but... Uh, it was all he could do to pull me back in a room. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. It was all he could do. He was doing it. He was every, using everything he could to get me back in the room. And then we had to make up a story about how at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, how you wind up coming to the emergency room with cuts all over your yeah. body. Yeah. So they dressed me at least before they yeah. took me. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's scrambling for a story right there. Yeah. <clears throat> but sure that they was, see some crazy stuff. Oh man, I can't. I, I mean, I'm just grateful in some ways to be because that was a moment where you're seeing death and you are as fra- afraid as you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. I mean, just you know that you're not in a good place, and uh, and so for it to come back, trying to grab me again, mm-hmm. and to just know the peace that passes all understanding, you know. So and just just look it right in the face and say. Doesn't matter. Take me. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Mm-hmm. God's going to take care of everything. <clears throat> he's got. He's got. He's in complete, total control. Yeah. And so that's what sort of put me on a. After that happened, of this kind of journey to figure out what does it mean to really understand the fear of God, so that you can trust Him with your life 
completely, totally. And I, I think I think I think it's something that's needed. I, th- I think a lot of, especially I see a lot of young, you know, Christian young Christian people, and they they live in fear. So they're just living in fear. And I'm going, what what God showed me in the hospital was very simple. He said, and I'll give you this is almost like a quote to me. He said, "You will learn to fear me." Or you will be afraid of everything else, and I mean everything else. In quotations. In quotations. So, <clears throat> and so, and so, I, I've kind of tried to put that to the test, and I think there's some truth to that because I, I think, I think, if you don't understand the fear of God, you're afraid to get up in the morning. You're afraid to get in your car. You're afraid to have a relationship with someone. You're afraid of it. You just you you wind up being afraid of everything, mm-hmm. and you just live in constant fear. And I I'm convinced that God does not want us to live in fear, because he, and this is the other thing. As I as I looked at it more and more, I got two two other messages. I felt like and uh, and they they were this you know it's a question. What does God say to those who fear Him? What's His word to them? It's in the Bible over and over and over and over again. Fear not. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. So if you if you learn to fear God, his first message is to you, don't be afraid. Don't even be afraid of me necessarily. Mm. You know, so good because you've so got the place. Let's tease that out a little more. So so what does the fear of God look like then practically if you're not afraid of anything? Like like what does it look like on a day to day level? It it's it's it creates an intimacy with God that you are aware of his presence in your life his spiritual presence in your life 24/7 okay you know and so if if you are if you're in the middle of something and you know God is there with you because you've sensed his presence you don't have to worry about that. So situation. it's an awareness of his power. It's just aware. It's just an awareness of his, not even necessarily his power, but just his being, okay. his being there. And I think every Christian needs to get to the place of experiencing that kind of thing. Because you know what his message is to those who do, do not fear him? It's found in Hebrews. It says, it is, a, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm-hmm. You know, so, man, so which side do you want to be on? You know, so so I, I think I would rather be on the one that I hear fear not right. you know, as opposed to, I don't know what it's going to be like for people in a certain, at a certain point in time when they fall into the hands of the living God. It's going to be t- terrifying. And I, I think part of it is we've kind of gotten away from hell, and we've gotten away from judgment. We've gotten away. Right. God's our best buddy now, yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, and our servant, and He does everything for us and take care of you. Know, so, and it's we have no fear of Him whatsoever. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not it's not culturally normal to hear fear God. Right, right. In fact, it's wrong in some right. ways. You know, mm-hmm. so but by fear, I don't mean. I'm shaking in my boots. Although, look at what happens many times in the Bible. God, you know, uh, God comes into someone, and the, His presence comes into someone. What, what's the first thing they do? They fall on their they face. Fall tremble. on their face. They lay prostrate before Him, begging for just don't look at me too long. You know, yeah. so and, uh, and uh, that's from Moses on down. You know, so and um, you know, so I, I think I think a good dose of that probably wouldn't be too bad for our culture right now. Mm. Where we get to the note, to the place, you know, when, when was the last time we laid prostrate on our face before God? You can't you know, so. think of it. We just don't do it, right? So, I mean, he's our best buddy. We don't have to. So yeah, and uh, mm. and it's 
it's probably not a bad practice to get into, you mm-hmm. know, at some point in time, just to say, I'm God, I just, <clears throat> I'm, I'm giving it all to you. I'm, I'm surrendering it all to you. And so I, I think, I think a lot of the, the fear that we're struggling with on a regular basis is because even as Christians, it's because we don't understand, we don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be to be in fear of God. I think one way that that can be explained a little bit is, like I know, <clears throat> at least with um, in my life, and I think probably a lot of people in my generation is the fear of other people's opinions of you and. When you put that into perspective against uh, the power of the Almighty God, it's like people, other people's opinion of you starts to pale in comparison. And so I think that can yeah. be a way to explain, like, okay, once you understand, and like, this is certainly not, this is certainly something that I need to work on more and, and ask the Lord to give me because <coughs> after your Sunday school lesson, I, I did a lot of thinking about that and, and realizing that I, it's uh, the fear of the Lord is not something that I have and it's something that I, I think is missing in my personal life. But um, with that being said, I think when you realize, okay, you know, this is the Lord that made all the oceans and all the seas and he's got all this power. He, you know, other people's opinions of you doesn't matter. So right. that's, that's helpful to put it into practical terms like that because I could, I could see it'd be easy to think, well, I'm not afraid of anybody or anything. So mm-hmm. what's, you know, what's with all this fear stuff, but, but we are, right. we are always afraid of something. So it's I know that, we yeah. live in it. Yeah. You know, we live yeah. in fear, you know, and so I would, I would prefer personally to live in the fear of God, you know, not necessarily the fear of, of right. anything else. Right. But, you know, I mean, we're always, I'll be here, I listen to conversations. People say it all the time. Oh man, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to fail my test. I'm afraid I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid I'm not going to find a place to live this summer. <coughs> I'm afraid, you know, I mean, Where's God? <laughs> so, I mean, can He not give you a place to live this summer? So, I mean, you know, so can He not help you with the test if you help if you'll study a little bit? You know, I mean, just you know, I mean, you know, just you know, it's it's like we've left God out of it. So, yeah, we claim Him, but we just leave Him out. Mm-hmm. So, the fear of God forces Him into your into your experience. Yeah, well, we compartmentalize. Yeah, you yeah. know. We, we, we fear him on Sunday, but then maybe not the other days. It's, it's like so. the funny old story about the guy, the roofer, you know, that's uh, up on the roof and he starts he starts slipping down. He's going to fall off the edge of the roof and he starts praying on the way down. He says, God, if you save me, I'll serve you. I'll be your person for him here on out. And about that time, he, his pants catch on a nail that's sticking up and he stops before he falls off the front. And he says, oh, well, never mind. There was a nail here. Uh, you know, so, you know, so, so, this, the nail saved me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's just I don't know. I don't know what to. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, if, since then I've I've been doing an exhaustive amount of research myself on just understanding fear. I've got probably I'm handwriting, but I probably have fifty pages. <clears throat> I mean, fear comes up in the scriptures over and over. So is and this over. is this Bible study research? Yeah, yeah, okay, Bible, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at the Word, yeah, and, uh, and discovering what kind of fears people have. You know, so and uh, I mean, look at the children of Israel. 
you know, they're they're in the wilderness, you know, going through the wilderness. They got out there living one fear after another, mm-hmm. you know, so. And, and it causes you to complain and be frustrated. Wow, here's God that just split the Red Sea for you for crying out loud. You know, he's giving you manna and quail from heaven. You know, heaven, he's providing for you hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. And you're still afraid. <clears throat> so what would you what would you say <clears throat> this is a this is a um a double question so uh, one what would you sh- say to the person that doesn't think or believes that the lord doesn't reveal reveal himself to them and what would you say and, and <clears throat> has that ever been true in your life like have you ever gone through periods where you think that the lord is not with you in this time and what would you say to the person that that maybe believes that right. in their own life. Well, I, I think there are all you know, all of us experience those dark times of the soul. You know, so in fact, the Bible's clear on that. You know, it says uh, there's a great verse in Jeremiah that I love. I sat beneath the hand of God alone because His wrath was upon me. Hmm. So, so there are these. And, and, you know, you got to walk that lonesome valley. Got to walk it by yourself. You know, so and uh, and uh, you know, so so I think God. That's one way that God kind of. I don't know, teaches us, you know, uh, you know, so those to, to go through those dark times of the soul. But I think there's, there's a place of maturity in Christ where even when you know, because our, we, our life is a series of cycles anyway, you know, so I'm up and then I'm down, I'm up and I'm down, to, to be able to know kind of what your own personal cycle is and to know that even when I'm going to have those moments where I'm starting, where my circle starts going down towards the bottom, God hadn't left, God's still there, you know, so, and, uh, and I, I think you can reach a place of maturity that, I'm not saying it's easy to get through those moments, and I'm not saying that we're completely successful with it, we still get angry, we get mad at God, we get frustrated, we get whatever, we yell, we scream, we cuss, we do whatever, mm-hmm. but it's still, it's, it's like, even, even cussing God out, is an is an awareness that he's there, right. you know. So right. and uh, and so so it's it's it's. I think there is a place for every Christian where you can get to the place where you are aware of some of God's presence in your life all the time. Hmm. Might have to go through several cycles before you gain that exactly level right. of self and, and, that, and that's where maturity can come in yeah. and time, you know, and and then just. Staying active, you know, staying active with God, you know, staying active in his word and staying active in prayer. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've been doing this prayer walk now for over 20 years and just to learn how to pray without it becoming a conversation with yourself. Right. (laughs) Is is a, not an easy task. Mm-hmm. It's very complex. I still, I'm in the middle of what I think is prayer, and all of a sudden I realize, man, I'm just talking to myself. This mm-hmm. is stupid, and so you have to you have to rebuke that, you know, and just say, God, I, I want to talk to you. I want I want I want to hear from you. I want to I want to because it's not just talking to God; it's communing with God, and communing with God means that I'm listening as well too. And it's hard. It's very hard to listen to God, mm-hmm. you know, because God doesn't always speak the way we want him to speak. You know, most of the people when Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, they heard thunder. Mm-hmm. So only the, only the people who had the right kind of ears mm. could hear the, the voice of God. You know? 
So I'm not saying I've arrived at any in any of these places. I promise sure, you. Right. So I'm still trying to I'm still trying to figure it out. But sure. I have I do know, and it would be it would be wrong of me to say I don't understand the fear of God. I'd be lying if I said that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and so I, but I, I, I don't understand it in an eternal way. Mm-hmm. I understand it for where I am at this moment in yeah. time. Yeah. And I know there's a lot more to it that, you know, so. And, yeah. uh, well, and, Proverbs kind of speaks to that. It doesn't say that the fear of God is all wisdom. It's the beginning of yes, wisdom. It's the start right. of, of this process. And so I'm thankful in a sense for going through a variety of near-death experiences, eight total, uh, just to say, at least from that, I've learned something about my own pilgrimage and my own journey and my own relationship with God. I'm not joking. I mean, I'm doing some work out there. I'm sweating and hard. It's not going right. You know, things are going, they always go amiss or something goes wrong or something like that. I'm not jumping up and down saying, praise God, hallelujah. You know, I'm, I'm angry. <laughs> I'm frustrated. And, uh, but it doesn't take, at least now, it doesn't take near as long to get past that to go, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. You know, let's just start over again. Let's stop for a minute. Let's just catch our breath and let's just start over again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I was, as a young parent, five young children man i was a mean sob you know mm-hmm. so very impatient and uh wrong you know so it's taken a long time i mean but that's what's beautiful our relationship with god is not just because i made some decision when i was 12 years old or whatever you know it's it's what's my relationship with god right now mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. and uh god never stops his, his relationship with us mm-hmm. he always is there. Yeah. So that's what someone said. I mean, they felt like God has forsaken them. God hadn't moved. You moved. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and you got to come, you got to realize that, you know, God's the same. He hasn't changed. So, uh, I mean, it may seem like that, but it's just not, that's not true. That is a lie. And, uh, and, and get to, to the point of recognizing that that is a lie. You know, even, you know, even in those dark moments, it's not because God has left us. It's because we're going through something, mm-hmm. you know, so, but God is still there. He's still the same. He's unchanging. And so to kind of come to grips with that in the middle of your despair or whatever it might be is, mm-hmm. is not a bad, not a bad thing. So, so that experience that you had in the second, second story, uh, the first time you saw the face of death, was that your first near death no, experience? No, uh, my first one was when I was 10 years old. Okay. So, and it's, it turned out to be a, it's a kind of a comedy, but it started out as a very dark tragedy. Okay. So, <laughs> my brother and I, we would, uh, my, old, my older brother Bubba, who was quite the character, and uh, he was an adventurer. You like to like to go on journeys, and uh, so we would we would ride our bikes out of this little small town in Rosenberg, Texas, going in a different direction. You know, just to explore the countryside and mm-hmm. we came upon this place it was called the Cottonwood School I still remember it quite well it was a little four room schoolhouse right at the corner of Cottonwood and some other road and uh, it's in disrepair it hadn't been used in years and so we we discovered it we thought man this might be kind of cool see if we can get in there and look around mm-hmm. so we hit our bikes under a, under a bridge and went across the ditch and we found a window that was broken and so we could crawl up you know I, he had to hoist me up and then I pulled him up and because uh, the windows were up high 
and, and it's a fascinating place. It's incredible. I mean, there's still old desks in there. They're turned over. There are books laying around. The blackboards are half fallen off. You know, I mean, okay. it's, it's just it's you know it's like they just left it kind yeah, of bombed out, bombed out. Yeah, and so we're looking around and uh, and. We're in one room, and all of a sudden we hear footsteps. Oh, Somebody else is in the building with us. <laughs> At the end of every room, they had this, these coat closets that kind of ran the whole length of the room. You go in one door and you come out the other or something, grab your coat. So we're kind of freaking out. Okay, so uh, so my bro- Bubba says, look, we, we got to hide. So we go into the clothes <laughs> closet, the, you know, the coat closet. He's the first one in. Okay, so I'm the last one in. So I'm about two feet from the door. And I'm, we're crouched down as low as we can possibly get. I'm, I'm, my, my face is facing the door. He's, his back. We're back to back. You know, he's, okay. he's down on the floor. He doesn't want to get. If, if anybody's going to kill us, <laughs> I'm the first to... person that's going to get killed. <laughs> so, so I hear the guy. Who I hear a person coming. They get closer and closer and closer. Pretty soon they're standing right outside the door. Okay. I'm freaking out. My heart is pounding away. I don't know what's going on. About to tell the door creaks open like this. I see an arm come around the around the outside of the door with a pistol in it. And the pistol comes right to my forehead. <laughs> so it's like three inches from my face. So, so I'm a dead man at yeah. this point. I'm just I'm I'm gone. You know, I didn't even have enough life for it to flash in front of my face. <laughs> so, 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 I'm just dead. And so I'm you know I'm ready to die. I'm just sitting there ready to die. And about that time, the gun just pulls back. Arm disappears. The door creaks closed. Footsteps go out. Gone. No way. So yeah, just gone. And so we're 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 still freaking out. So we wait about ten minutes. You know, just thinking if he's going to come back. You know, so maybe he didn't see. I don't know. We don't know what went on. So anyway, so then with no more sounds, we decide to go out. And so we're creeping out. We get back to the window where we're going to crawl out the window sill and jump down. I get up to the top of the window sill, and there's a guy sitting underneath the window sill with a pistol in his hand, saying, "Where are your boys going?" Oh my. <laughs> So it turned out to be he was the owner of the farm that the building was on. Oh <laughs> so, uh, so he makes us crawl down. Okay, so he's got us there, and he he makes us we we get our bikes, we put them in the back of his truck, we drive to his house. We're thinking he's going to call the sheriff or something. We're going to jail or something. So right. we get to the we get to and we're talking. You know, we're riding in the cab with him, the three of us, and so he, he's talking to us about how we're trespassing and doing all this kind of stuff, and you know, we might could go to jail for this, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we're really freaking out even more now. So we finally get to it, and he said, and he. We get to his house, and he says, uh, "He said I'm not going to call the sheriff." He said, I, "I think you boys maybe have learned your lesson a little bit here." Wow. So he said, uh, "He said, in fact, I can tell that you're really afraid." He says, he "said Why don't you? Why don't, why don't we just take a minute here? My wife has made some fresh cookies. We'll, I'll pour you a glass of milk. We'll have cookies and wow. milk." Wow. <laughs> And then he finally tells us, he says, if you ever want to come back and look at the yeah. schoolhouse, just come by the farm first, <laughs> talk to me, and I'll take you, and I'll take you on a personal wow. tour. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. But for that moment when, that, when you're facing that pistol, that was death. That was sheer death. So, so four, ten years and old. I'm ten years old kid. So, wow. and, uh, my brother was eleven. Thinking back on, it, I'm thinking, man, Bubba. You would have sacrificed me in a half a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So, so that was my first experience yeah, with death. Yeah. So, and uh, the second one came when I was in high school. 
and I, I was a surfer and uh, surf down in the Gulf. And what we'd always want to do is wait for tropical storms to come in because that's when you want the surf was the best. And so we'd go down there. Not many people would go down there and surf when it, when it was because uh, the waves were like 8 to 10 feet tall or something. And so uh, and you always want to surf close to a pier because somehow the pier affects the way the, the, the sand underneath is set so it makes the waves better. And so you have to just watch out for the pier, but you can surf on it. And uh, this was before they finally figured out how to put an ankle thing around your ankle and tie it to your surfboard so you wouldn't lose your board. Uh-huh. This was before all that. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so usually, if you fell off your board, your board went into the into the you know into the beach, and you're left out in the water. You got to swim in, so against the undertow okay. and everything. So, so anyway, we're surfing out there. There's nobody out there really, but maybe ten of us. And uh, I wipe out. And, you know, just tumbling, uh, you know, with water just crushing me. And it, and there's a huge undertow sucking you up. And, man, I am just, I am dying for breath. And so I just come up and catch a breath and another wave would hit me, just knock me down. I'm just rolling. And then uh, I get another breath. The same thing would happen. And at the same time you're rolling forward, you're being sucked back out. And, uh, and so I, I just, at that point, I thought I was going to drown. I really, I really thought I was going to die. I thought, man, this is the way. This is the way David Burt dies right mm-hmm. here. He drowns surfing. And for some reason, I go down and get a breath. I mean, you're fighting to get breath. I go down and get a breath, and when I come up, I saw one of the columns of the um, of the pier just right in front of me, and uh, and so man, I just latched onto it as hard as I possibly could, not realizing covered with barnacles. Okay, so now it's ripped my chest open, you know, so, and my arms are you know, so I'm bleeding. Up there now, sharks, you know, so, but, but I, I don't care at this point. I scurry up it a little bit so I can kind of see and get my bearings and get my breath, and I'm just hanging on. And I happen to look on the other side of the on the other side of the pier is my surfboard just bobbing up the up and down. So I dove uh, past the, the column and just, you know, the, the pillar and, and swam to a surfboard and went in. So got got just floated in and got to the beach and just, I mean, I'm cut up. I'm, people are now helping me, you know, just trying to stop. It's the minor cuts, but still. Yeah. Not not very good with salt water. You know, so, <laughs> so, uh, but that was like, I'm not joking. I mean, I thought. I thought, man, I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was, mm-hmm. I thought it was a dead goner, but you know, turned out I wasn't. But just again, fear. I didn't see any visions at this point, but just knowing that this is, it's over for you. Uh-huh. It's over for you, and you, you don't have a clue of what's going to happen to you. So, do you think these experiences have uh, led to your charisma in in the church? I think so. I think a lot of it has because uh, because of, of coming to grips with um, with um, experiences like that. That sort of you know somehow why why was I spared? You know why why was I why was I mean why was I not taken? You know because uh, seven of my eight no I take that back six of my eight happened before I was a Christian mm-hmm. and the other two happened afterwards and uh, but you know why why you know what what are, what are the lessons that God has for you in those kind of experiences and then that's kind of where I've been grappling now to just go back and kind of examine them and figure out what did I learn at that moment and what what 
more does God have to teach me about what it what it means to have survived near death? I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of us, maybe we may not have as many as I have, but every every person doesn't. We don't we don't even know sometimes the escapes that God has caused in our life that we we're just a few seconds away from death and he somehow we, we may not even be aware of them at least he's made me kind of aware of them so so i know you said eight so we're about halfway there which which ones were the most formative for you the the one uh where i was i was busted for possession of marijuana we haven't gotten to that one we yet. haven't gotten to that one that happened after i moved to idaho uh, is that next in line or uh, the next in line is the one that we shared about jumping out the window. Oh, okay, okay, okay. yeah. And then, so this would be number four, I okay. think. So, and I, I may not get all the numbers exactly right, but uh, but uh, yeah, we were no. There's there was one before that. Yeah, there was one before that. I was I was a barn builder in Weezer, Idaho, and I was lonely. I was completely lonely. I was living in a a, a, a apartment above a hardware store downtown Weezer, Idaho, a terrible place, you know, and uh, no friends, no, no, I knew nobody my age, my crew, I was working with all older guys, and uh, I would just sit out at this bench at the town square and just watch the teenagers go by, you know, and ever so I'd go play, shoot a game of pool or something like that, who knows, but I was just nothing. And one night, these guys pull up beside me and said hey man we've been watching you hang out here you want to go to a party you know and i said oh man yeah cool so i got in the car with him and went to went off downtown to this house and man we are getting stoned out and i'm i was kind of at this point i was pretty experienced with it so i could kind of hold my own so the whole thing at those days were seeing if you could smoke somebody under the table uh-huh. you know, so, or drink somebody and whatever it might be so I'm telling lies, you know, telling stories or whatever, and you know, and, and pretty soon I see they're all passed out. And I'm the <laughs> only one, I'm the only one left awake, <laughs> except I look over in the corner of my eye, and there's a guy sitting at the kitchen table, inside the kitchen door. He's got the light on, and we're we're in the dark pretty much here. So I get up to go talk to him, and as soon as I get into through the door jam, he wheels around with thirty odd six right in my face. And says, "I should kill you, you dirty rotten, you know, whatever, you know, just cussing me out." Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm at this point, you know, you get sober like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Trip and I, over. And I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on here. So I'm, I'm trying to talk, to, you know, find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, his brother had just been busted for possession of marijuana, was oh, in jail, okay. and they thought that a narcotics agent. Is the one that turned him in, and they thought I was the narcotics agent because you were older than everybody else. Older, around. a new guy in town, yeah. you know, so and so forth, and so uh, so he was gonna he was gonna take care of business for me getting his brother in jail. Wow! Once he realized, you know, within five minutes he realized I was not a narc, <clears throat> and uh, and then he he backed off. But uh, later on, I met his brother. Got him out on bail. We became good friends. Sure, you and, uh, did. And uh, <laughs> we're sitting in a park, just having a good time. And his brother's walking across, and, and uh, his his the, the the one that pointed the gun at me, and his the, his big brother said, "You ought to go get him and just beat the living hell out of him." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I took out running after him like this, and I caught, I caught up with him like that. And he's laying on the ground, just huffing and puffing, and I'm right over the top of him. And I you know, I said, "Man, I, you know," and he's "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry." So he was just a high school punk, and. Uh, and so I finally said, that's all right, man. Don't worry about it. This is, you, so, you chased down the guy that pointed the gun at yeah, you. Yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, but I didn't do anything except yeah. just hang over him. Right. So, but then when uh, when I moved back up to Moscow, Idaho, this was down in south, south southern Idaho where I was building barns. But uh, when 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 winter would come, we'd move up to go back. You know, cause no work. This was in November, and a guy who I knew not real well was uh, building. He was he was he had inherited a farm from his family big log cabin, a beautiful place, and he was cutting timber. He had a big tractor, and, uh, and so, but he was wanting a barn built to protect the jack tractor because winter was coming on, and so he, he asked me if I'd come and help him build a barn. So I was there working with him. And I did not know it at the time, but he was AWOL from the National Guard during the war in Vietnam. Not a not a good idea. You know? So I mean, that could be a capital offense if you're a traitor. You know? So and uh, but we're out there working one day, and these guys pull up, and they're just hunters, and uh, they they had been hunting on his property for years and now they found out that somebody's living there so they were just asking permission and so yeah we drank a couple of beers everything was cool said, yeah no problem man you can come hunt anytime you want everything was great they left no big deal we didn't realize they were actually deputy sheriffs and they recognized him from a wanted poster oh my goodness wow. and so they came back and set up a bust to get him and so it's dawn He's living. He's he's asleep on his cot back in a corner. This is. I'm telling you, he had just. He he had a, his money crop was was marijuana. He had just harvested. He had three trash bags, big giant leaf trash bags full of marijuana sitting behind his bed. <laughs> Timing could not have been better, huh? <laughs> I tell you. So so I'm you know I'm laying on the pallet on the floor. Again, naked. I was almost naked when right. I was swimming. But <laughs> Paranormal. So, so I hear a noise. This is dawn. Okay, I hear this noise, and I look up, and about the time I look up, the door comes flying off the hinges and just slams into the floor. And there's a guy with, a, with an orange day hunter's cap on and a plaid jacket. And he's standing over me with a rifle, and he's basically saying, please move, you little MF, so I can blow your GD head off. <laughs> so I'm thinking I am dead. And what flashed before me at this point was I saw the headlines from a newspaper, and it said, crazed hunters kill hippies. <laughs> you knew this was what's going down. I'm thinking I'm dead. You know, so, and that they were, I don't know what they were there for. But they were, and then I, I happened to notice quickly that he had a policeman's uniform underneath his jacket. And, uh, and so they were police officers. So at that point, I knew they weren't going to kill us. But uh, they took us in. But that, that scared the bejeebies out of me. And you said that's the one that, that had the most impact on you or it, the one that formed you the most it, it probably had a lot of impact on me in that it it made me have to stop because they put me in jail okay two days before this happened we're downtown moscow idaho and a guy gives me a bible a little a little pocket new testament and so i my brother had become a christian down in texas and so I was kind of gladly took the Bible because I was going to read it because I if I if I had to argue with my brother I'd have some at least at least I'd read you know what he was talking about and so I go they take us in they handcuff us they take us in to jail the Lake Tahoe County Jail and uh, in Moscow 
you know, and if you've ever been arrested, you know, you got to give all your stuff over to them. They fingerprint you. They take your mug shot, all this kind of stuff. So we go through all that stuff, and I throw all my stuff out on the counter for them, which they put it in a plastic bag, and the deputy's sitting there, and the sheriff is there, and the deputy's right beside him, and the, uh, the uh, sheriff says, boy, what you doing with the Bible? And the deputy says, maybe we should let him keep that. <laughs> Might do him some good. <laughs> so, so he said, okay, you can keep your Bible. You know, so, so I go, I go into jail. The next morning, this is in the evening, you know, late afternoon, evening. The next morning, the military is there to pick up Bob, and they take him to Seattle. You know, he's going to go on trial for being AWOL. You know? Okay. So, so he's gone. Not another person comes into the jail for the next five days. So I'm the only inmate in this jail for five days. Wow. And it's just me, the New Testament, and my jail cell, <laughs> and, a, and a poor boy from Texas who's in Idaho, not knowing, you know, thinking he's going to go to prison. You know, so because they've got me for, for, you know, possession of marijuana with intent to deliver. You know, so it's what they've got me for. Okay. They arrested him for being AWOL from the Army. Sure. And uh, so, uh, Air Force. So we're... You know, I'm I'm sitting there, and they close. They turn off the lights at eleven o'clock every night. So I'm sitting there. I have nothing going on. Okay, I'm nothing. Nothing. You know. So I just started reading the New Testament, and I actually got through it almost completely two times in the next four days. Just mm-hmm. reading. I'm mean, just reading four or five hours a day, and um, and I I am not kidding. And this was all because of that experience. I would. I mean, I was scared out of my wits. Because I had no, I had only one person I really knew. They didn't have money to bail me out. I mean, I was, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. But I would lay at night on my bunk after they turned the lights out and I couldn't read anymore. And just scared, a scared kid, 23, 22 years, 22 years old. And um, just scared out of my wits. I would just close my eyes and it was like I was praying, but I wasn't, I didn't know what, what praying was. But I, I am not kidding. I would sense Jesus coming into the room, and he would put his hand on my, on my head, and he would say, it's okay. I've got this. Hmm. I'm taking care of it. And so there was something about when I finally, uh, it took five days for me to go before the judge. I'll go before the judge, and he's got all the paperwork in front of him. And uh, he, uh, the first question he asked me, he says, are you a resident of this home? And I said, no, I was just there build, helping him build a barn. And I had a different residence. So he said, so he's the, the arresting police officers there as well. And um, he turns to the police officer and says, what was the warrant for? And uh, he said, we had a warrant for this guy being AWOL from the Air Force. He said, did you have a warrant to search for marijuana? I said, no, we didn't. We just happened to find it. He said, he said and then he turned back to me and says, now, what were you wearing when they came in? I said, I was completely naked. He turns to the police officer, how could he be in possession of anything if he didn't have any clothes on? Wow. <laughs> he got onto the police officer. He got onto the police officer. And, uh, and, and, and he, said, he said, plus, how could, we, how could we get him for the ownership of these drugs when he was just a hired hand there, mm-hmm. just being hired to work? And so they, they dismissed the whole thing. He gave me, he, he gave me a misdemeanor it was called frequenting a place where a known amount of a controlled substance was located. Hmm. A misdemeanor, my fine five days in jail, which I'd just done. Nice. And so uh, so when I wa- was walking out to court, he stopped me and he said, Mr. Burke, 
I turned around. I said, yes, sir. And he said, you know you got off this time, but I just want you to know I am after you. I'm, I'm going to make sure that we get you. Wow. So just just be warned. You're, you're had. You know, so. And uh, at this point, I was already thinking about going back to Texas anyway. <laughs> so, so within a week, I left for Texas you know, <laughs> so to go back home. So, uh, so I was glad to get away from there. But, but that, that uh, you know, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't become a Christian at that moment. That was in November of 1972. I became a Christian on Friday, April the 13th, 1973, just like three or four months later. Four months later. And it just took a lot of investigation, praying, reading, talking to other Christians, talking to my brother. Uh, I'll tell you, this is amazing to me. When I got home, the first thing I wanted to do was go see my brother Jimmy because Jimmy's one year younger than me. He's now, he was killed in a car accident. Uh, was a pastor of a church but when, growing up Jimmy hated my guts I mean I could I knew I could push buttons and get him I would I could turn him into a raving lunatic within two minutes I mean I was a I was a professional at it <laughs> so you could probably do that with Aaron yeah, I'm yeah. guessing so, oh, yeah. so uh, but I mean I, I mean and he, I could just every time he would just be ranting angry I would see this hate in his eyes his eyes would be filled and he was always like you wait someday I'm gonna win I'm gonna beat you someday he did he became a Christian before me you know so <laughs> So I couldn't. He was living in a Christian commune, and so I couldn't wait to go to see him when I got back, just to test. So my test, and so I, I'm. We he he knows I'm coming, so he's waiting in the yard, and so we meet in the middle of the yard, and I am not joking. When we when we met eye to eye, and this has been almost three years since I had seen him, I, when we met eye to eye. I looked into his eyes and I could see there was all that hate that I'd seen forever was completely gone. And I saw nothing but compassion and love. He fell on my neck and started begging me for forgiveness for for getting angry with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, I'm the one that should be asking you for forgiveness because I'm the one that was... The, you know, I, I instigated all this crap, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I remember we were just holding each other. And I remember saying to myself and to God, "I'm saying, God, I know you're real, because if you can do this with him and change him this way, I know that you're real." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of time for me at that point. Yeah, and, uh, that and, was sort of what sealed it for you. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it, it, the reality of. God was so confirmed just by looking into into the eyes of my brother. Hmm. And so on Friday, I, I, I'd been going to a revival service at this church, and I don't even remember the preacher's name, but I remember he had an ichthus that he wore in his lapel, and he just kept pushing me every night. Man, you need to get set. You know, just, I mean, just every night pushing me. And I would come so close every night. I just <laughs> couldn't quite make myself do it. And I was still had a, I still had some marijuana left, okay? And... Um, and so I'd go after church and smoke marijuana, but uh, but at one point it was like on Wednesday night or something. I said, "Well, if I become a Christian, will you give me that fish that's on your lapel?" He said, "Man, I'll give you my coat. Wow. <laughs> so you can have the. I'll go buy. I mean, I'll do whatever. You know, so yeah. you get saved." And so uh, so I, we, I went to the revival. It was Friday night. You know, I'm, I'm sitting on my porch step. I live out in the country and. Uh, 
I'm sitting, I got my last joint in my hand like this, and I'm going, God, I'll tell you what, I'm going to smoke this joint, get stoned. This will be the last time I ever get stoned. Tomorrow night, I'm going to give my heart to you. I am, again, I'm not kidding. I heard a voice inside me say, if you smoke that joint, I will have nothing to do with you. Wow. It's over between us. It's over. Hmm. I took it, I threw it on the ground, I stomped it in the ground, I laid prostrate on my face before God and just started begging him, begging him for forgiveness, hmm. begging him wow. for, and at, when, I, when I started laying there pre- begging, I just felt this kind of hand come down on the back of my head and just lift me up. And uh, so I couldn't wait, couldn't even wait for the sermon to be over really, you know, so as soon as it may, I got, I got over there and I, I went up to the guy and said, Give me that ichthus, bud. <laughs> Give me that finish. And so he said, "He said I'm going to pin you tonight. You joined the best fraternity you could ever join." <laughs> so, uh, he sounds like a Baptist preacher. Yeah, he was a Baptist. <laughs> he was a Baptist church. Yeah. So, you know, and he pinned me that night. So. That was 1973. 1973, April, Friday, April the 13th. Wow. Friday the 13th. Wow. I know Saturday is when I when I I, I got saved before midnight on Friday. Wow. And uh. When I, that's why I felt like I got saved, but I just confirmed it with him the mm-hmm. next day. I don't even remember his name. You know, and he, he was a great preacher. He was a good preacher. But I'd heard a lot of preaching in the last few months. So, yeah. so there was this guy at this Assembly of God church. He was about, I guess he was probably in his 80s, heart missing teeth, real tall and lanky. He's about like a bean pole. He, he could literally stand on one side of the podium and lean around the other side. <laughs> and what he would do, he would, he would, when he was in the middle of his preaching, he would walk down the aisle and he would just eyeball everybody on each aisle. And if you, if he sensed something, he would just stop right there and says, "Get yourself down to that altar boy right now." Wow. And so, man, I'm, I see he's coming at me, and I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, so, and sure enough, I get he gets down to me, he just looks at me, he says, "Get down to that altar right now, boy." I got up, went down there. I didn't get saved that night but man I just I did it because I didn't want him to get me <laughs> so, 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 that's the wrong kind of fear yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's not the fear of God no no he put the fear in you though boy yeah. so but it was just a matter of time I just got when I finally uh, gave my heart to Christ mm-hmm. so, wow. and uh, so did you grow up in a in a Christian home Roman Catholic okay really so, I know. did not know that yeah, my mother was a faithful Roman Catholic. My father was a backslidden Church of Christ, so he okay. never went to church. Sure. So, and uh, uh, but my mom was was you know she made him take us faithfully. She she never learned how to drive, so Dad would have to drop us off and come mm-hmm. pick us up. So mm-hmm. and uh, but he never came in. So I I was I was an altar boy. I thought I was going to be a priest at some point. You know, yeah. so uh, you know, it, it was important to me growing up. What What was it that got you on the path of of you know going to Idaho and and finding where Where did the drugs come from? I started. Uh, I start really. I grew, uh, I smoked my first joint the summer after I graduated from high school in 1968. Okay, and uh, just at a party, and just like I met friends. some girl, and she just said, "Hey, I've got you know." So went out in the car and smoked, and so yeah. and it didn't really impact me, but it, but later on it started. So, okay. and then I then I started junior college, and that's when I met this guy Derek Ader, and he had been he had been in the military in Vietnam and was now out and uh, and was uh, uh, 
got totally involved in stuff while he was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, we became, we we're both in the theater together. Okay. So we became good friends. We're still friends to this day. Uh, one of the things, one of the most beautiful things that happened to me, this is one. This has happened to me before I became a Christian. I mean, I'm reading the Bible. I'm out of jail now before we leave. And we, the only fight we ever had was over the Bible because I'm telling you, man, this Jesus, he's like the best hippie of all time. You know, so, <laughs> so, I mean, he's wearing sandals. He's just full of love. He's, he's preaching the truth. He's just, I mean, you know, and so he would, he hated me for it. So we got into a, a big knockout, drag out fight over, <laughs> over the Bible. And, uh, <laughs> so, so we came back to take his his uh, parents were divorced. His mother lived in Texas. So that's what brought him there, okay. and his grandmother. And so, uh, we rode to Texas together. And then he took off to go back to Idaho, and I'm staying there. I'm sitting on my on my brother's bed. We're just talking. And when I, my mom brought in a letter from me from Derek and said, "Hey, you got a letter from Derek?" And because uh, everybody knew Derek's a great guy, very outgoing, and. Um, so I, I ripped it open, and on the way back to Idaho, he stopped in this little town, Cortez, Colorado. It was wintertime. It was cold. And so he got a hotel room, picked up the Gideon Bible, gave his heart to Christ. Wow. So, so he, and I'm telling you, when I, when I read that he had become a Christian, I did a backflip off the back of that bed. Yeah. I was so excited for him. Yeah. And so we've reconnected, and uh, and so now we have— we talk about once a month on the phone. Wow. We're going to try to get together this summer. We've gotten together twice in the last number of years. Mm. And his wife is a really fantastic Christian woman. You know, there's a really neat couple. Mm. That's amazing. To That's me. incredible. He ultimately became a lawyer and, and ultimately became a magistrate for juvenile court. Wow. <laughs> so, so. And he knew he couldn't he couldn't get anything past this guy because yeah. he had seen it all. <laughs> so, seen and so, done it all. Um, so anyway. So, is that all is that all eight? No, there's a, let's see, uh, the other one happened at Union. Okay. I had one at Union. I'm in the cafeteria. I will never touch these things again as long as I live. It's a mozzarella frozen uh, cheese stick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm in the cafeteria. I'm in, 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 uh, in Kobo or something like this. All right, I, I eat this, I'm eating a mozzarella cheese stick, and it, get caught, it gets caught in my throat. I can't make a sound. I can't breathe. I'm looking around. Everybody's just moving around like this. I'm thinking, I'm turning blue. I'm dying here. And nobody is even paying any attention to me whatsoever. I'm going, this is the way they treat the faculty. I had to grab a chair myself. I take the chair and I just go, bam, it gets my chest. And out came the cheese. <laughs> that is not what I thought you would say. <laughs> <laughs> it came out the right end this time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, man. Uh, but, but I'm thinking <laughs> I was this close to just suffocating to oh death. My God. So, and, and I'm guessing, no, I, I, th- at that point I saw headlines again, too. You know, uh, <laughs> union professor <laughs> chokes to death on cheese <laughs> with every student around him and none of them paying any attention whatsoever. <laughs> oh, so that changed your life and that you'll never have a cheese stick again? No, I've never had one since. That's how and that people said, hey, you want to cheat? No, I'm staying away from those things. <laughs> so, so, so. They're not good for you anyway. But, oh, so, apparently not. So, so, so. Um, <laughs> so then, the, then the last one was this one. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. But, uh, uh, oh my gosh. Crazy. He's crazy. I've got them all chronicled here. It's about 20-something yeah. pages. So, Gosh. Um, 
So what is it? Just tell the story and then just move straight on to the next one, or are there like reflections? No, there's reflections, and and that this came as more I thought about it. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read one of the this from Psalms 34. Uh, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. The poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord for those who fear him lack nothing. Come, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous person may have troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in God. So, and I I mean, that for me became a very powerful scripture out of all this because it's my story. It's Mm -hmm. my, it's, it's really my story. And uh, written by David, yeah, and another David. So it's amazing to me. So, uh, so at, at each one of these, I've you know some of them are funny, but some are not. So, but uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, but who knows? How did I, I don't know what's going to happen with them. So, uh, how did you end up at uh, at Christ Community at at the church that we all go to? Yeah, we yeah, we you know getting a union was a miracle in itself, but. Uh, but we were members of Woodland Baptist. With We first were members of Northside Assembly of God, but then I kind of felt like God was saying, you know, if you want more of a ministry on campus, you need to be a Baptist. So, so we joined, and I, that's, I knew Walton Podelford by then. We had, Walton, in a lot of ways, is what saved me throughout Union because we became kind of prayer partners, and uh, he was a mentor and really a very help for me whenever... Whenever things weren't going too well, I could always go to Walton and no judgment whatsoever. Yeah. You know, so and yeah. so was, I love my relationship with them. Uh, so uh, so we we that's why we started going to Woodland, and we were there for a number of years until it it was it went through a split itself. We didn't leave because of the split, but what was happening? There was a group of college students who were meeting in the theater. They just asked if they could meet in the theater on Sunday nights, trying to start a church. And a, a church for non-Baptists, and so I uh, just one night I decided I'd better just check them out, just see if they're heretics or something. <laughs> so, you know, so I I went in, and there was a guy there who was a ex-Church of Christ who had gotten filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was just he was just on fire Christian, and he was kind of the ramrodding the thing here. And um, so we talked, and then we after church we went. I went to his home. We talked for another two hours, and uh, he was really talking about starting a church up that was a cell-based church. Charlotte and I came from Houston in a cell-based church, and that's where he was just trying to rack my brain. So we left Woodland to help start this church. What's a cell-based church? You're where you meet in homes during the week okay, sure. you know, so instead of having a midweek service everybody meets at different homes and uh, yeah and uh so we that's what we wanted it to be and uh and so we were there for nine years and thomas Varghese was a member and uh it was an eldership mm-hmm. nick pappas was a yeah. member i mean it, 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 it was fun you know it was, i mean you had a great group of people we took turns preaching or teaching and uh but eventually we felt like God was calling us to disband and, um, and to just, 
because we were a church that was, we would kind of heal people. They would come in hurt, and we'd heal them, and then they would go out. You know, they didn't stay. And uh, and Nick had announced his retirement from Youth Town, and was also retiring from from our. He was the main pastor, you know, main elder. And so, and and then the, one of the, the guy that I had talked to, they were going to move to Nashville. So it was just going to be Thomas and myself and a guy named Leon Hoover. Leon was out of work. He was trying to get a job in Florida. So it was just time to just disband. Mm-hmm. And so when we disbanded, we were just looking for some other place to go. And I knew Walton was at, at Christ Community Church, so that's really what, why we came. And how did you end up being a professor at Union? This is really a strange story. Uh, I was working for a theater company, having kids, never seeing them. I would go to work at nine, work till five, go home, eat supper, go back, work till eleven every night, six nights a week, and it's crazy. And um, so I decided to go back to graduate school and uh, and see if I could get my master's degree and see see if I could move on to something else. And uh, and so I finally I hadn't quite finished it. It was it was the <coughs> spring. I was going to finish in the summer. And I blanketed the South with my resume. Sent out about 100 resumes to different Christian colleges. I just got a list of Christian colleges, sent them out looking for a job. But I really, I had my own carpentry business, which was doing great. And I knew I wasn't quite finished. So I was really, wasn't even necessarily looking for the fall. I was looking for a year later. And plus, I was mailed these out in April. And, you know, if you know anything about college, they want to hire in February or March if they can. You know, if, if, if it gets to April, you're freaking out. Okay. So I wasn't expecting to have any response whatsoever. You know, I was just expecting that maybe they would just put it aside and I would have to send it out again. You know, mm-hmm. you know, so, but I sent it out. I'm telling you, I sent it out and mailed them like a Monday morning. On Wednesday morning, Union, Union called me on the phone. Wow. It was Dr. Barefoot, and he said, uh, said, Mr. Burke said, uh, you won't believe what happened here. We had a theater director that we had hired, and on Friday, he called and asked to be released from his contract. He wasn't going to come. He says, your resume came to me in the mail on Monday morning, I mean, on Tuesday morning. <laughs> you know, so, wow. so, uh, so is there any way you could come and maybe talk to us about being a theater professor here? So by Friday, I'm at Union. So, within a week. Within a week, I'm wow. at Union, and by the afternoon, they're offering me the job. Mm-hmm. So I'm going, wow! Now I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so and knowing that I'm still not, I'll hopefully be finished in the in this in the summer. And uh, after that, I got about three or four other places calling me up. You know, apparently, that was kind of a time where they, people were needing theater directors, but they just wouldn't work out. I tried to go to OBU, so it was closer to where we lived. And uh, they just built a brand new theater. So I thought, man, this would be great. But every time I would try to set up an interview with them, the president wouldn't be there. And I had talked to the president. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, so finally, Dr. Bear kept pushing me. He said, man, we got to know. We got to know. So so by middle of May, I told him, yeah, I'll come. The bird in the hand, worth two in the bush. So it's yeah. kind of a miracle that I that I came. I mean, just just God just opened up the door. You know, and I'm right here. I'm there. I'm the person. At least t- three or four years later, there's a 
two students from Florida who are students at Union. One of them's working in the theater. The other one, I don't know what he was doing, but she she was was one of my actresses. So her dad, I got to know her dad. Her dad was from Jackson, went to Union, so send his kids back to Union, and he had actually taught at Union years before. So we became good friends. We're talking, we're, and we're doing conferences together because he's big in conferences. He does. He knows every Southern Baptist or is there. So he would invite me to go to these drama conferences all over the. You know. So so we became really good friends. So we're talking one day. He tells me he's the guy who they had hired to be oh, the theater gosh. director that turned them down. You know, so, <laughs> so, so I'm going, okay, so now I know the guy. You know, so, they gave and, me my job. Basically. Yeah, they gave me my job. So that made us even closer. At some point, unions hating my guts. I mean, they're trying to get me to quit. I mean, it was just really. And I, I did not know at the time. They had actually called. This guy's name was Wayne Johnson. They had called Wayne back to come and interview for my job before they even fired me. Wow. And so Wayne, at this point, says, okay, I'll come on. So he flew into Nashville with his wife. He told, he told me the story. He, they're driving to Jackson. They get to the city limits of Jackson. He turns to his wife, and his wife's name was Carolyn. He says, Carolyn, this is completely wrong. I cannot take this job. Wow. So they drove, they were going to Dr. Barefoot's house. They drove immediately to his house and just told him, said, I'm, I, I'm, I can't take the job. And they got in their car and drove back. Hmm. You know, didn't even interview. <clears throat> so, so they were stuck with me. Yeah. Later on, he tells me that story, and I'm going, Wow, you know, so you know, God was watching out for me and you both, mm-hmm. and then eventually, though, He came and did work work with me. We we hired him as a second theater person, so mm-hmm. and because uh, his parents were up in age, so he was he was able to be here when both of them passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, take care of them, mm-hmm. and we became we were always close friends. He eventually became he had dementia and had to quit. And moved back to Florida, hmm. so, and he's now passed away. But a, a, an incredible Christian gentleman, one of the most gentleman-like Christians I've ever known. Just hmm. really, really a special person. His children are special. So, yeah. You know, so, so that's kind of my story. I mean, that's kind of a. And I, when I came to Union, that's why I told God. I said, God, I will be here. You, you made it so clear to me that I'm supposed to be here. It's way beyond coincidence. I will stay here as long as you want me to be here. And if you want me to go, you're going to have to make it just as clear mm-hmm. that I'm supposed to go. And there was a number of times when I thought it was getting close, you know, <laughs> but it never, it, I never, I never, I always had a piece about being here until this, until this heart thing. And that's the other thing, laying in the hospital, not knowing what to do. Cause I was planning on retiring at 70. I was about to turn 60, 68. And lay in the hospital. I just again, I felt God saying, "Let someone else do it for a while. You've done it long enough." And, yeah. Uh, so I hang, hung on for one more year. Yeah. So how many how many years did you work here? Thirty three. Thirty three years. Yeah. Well, my one and only professorship. Yeah. And they said, you know, the other theater, other people tell me that's impossible. That mm-hmm. never happens because yeah. you screw up somehow. You have to go someplace yeah. else <laughs> to learn how to do it. Yeah. You know, so, so that was pretty, that's kind of miraculous in itself. Just the fact that my only job, I'm here for my only job. It's fun. So yeah, I loved it. <clears throat> you're retired now. Yeah. What are you doing now? 
we traveled. You know, I've only been retired <laughs> since last Friday, yeah, so, yeah, or yeah. a week ago Friday. <laughs> and uh, uh, what I'm, I'm going to be teaching for the BSOL, a public speaking class. And it'll be only eight nights a week. I mean, only eight, eight nights a week. Eight, eight nights a week. <laughs> You've eight been days a week. It's a Beatles song. <laughs> uh, eight weeks out of okay. the semester. Yeah. One night a week. <clears throat> so I'll do that in, starting in October. I may be working for the theater, too, building scenery. Yeah. Uh, to kind of help John out, you know, yeah. as they transition, trying to find someone to take my place. Uh, but... As you know, I'm, you're, I'm, you're, I don't know if you've looked at my Facebook page. You know, I started doing artwork on the side a number of years ago, and I, I'm I'm wanting to reconnect with that. Mm. Do more and more of that. Yeah, do more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your your art style is really interesting because you take you take things that have been thrown away and you turn them into something new. Right, so right. Really kind of reclaim, reclaiming. Yeah. It's kind of a story of my life in some ways. So yeah. it's just, a, you know, be a, to God, I felt like God <clears throat> reclaimed a piece of junk. <clears throat> I had one, I didn't make this up, but one guy said, when he, get, when he because he, he is, we're good friends, he's a preacher. He was a heroin addict when he got saved. About the same time, and we worked together, I knew him real well. Uh, his name's Donald Babin. Don, part of his testimony was from the guttermost to the uttermost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, and I don't know that he, he probably didn't make that up either, but yeah. it's was, it was kind of true. But. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that art stuff. That's great. I know. I got. I got a lot to do. I got. I got to get my Facebook page going better. I want to. I want to try to put together a. Uh, website mm-hmm. and uh but i gotta get some help on that i don't know what i don't know what i'm doing but yeah uh, and start a business so that we can get tax deductions on it too yeah but, get so. that llc going oh and it'd be great to sell some stuff you know so mm-hmm. you know get rid of some stuff yeah. but uh y'all need to buy something really special you know <laughs> <laughs> one of a kind well here's what we'll do we'll record a commercial after this and we'll put it somewhere in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, well they can visit my facebook page just david burke artist yeah <clears throat> and look at i've got a, a lot of pictures of stuff you can be our it. first advertiser there you go so. david burke's yeah. rent to own art right so uh, send us a script of what you want us to say yeah and, yeah I started doing this cool thing with uh, using. I try to I try to mix wood, metal, and glass together if I can, and so part of my glass has become marbles, and so I'm I've got this. I've done one experiment with you using marbles and wood and and metal together, and so I, I want to experiment with that more to see what what design you can make out of just why those three ingredients, why those three materials. You know they they kind of encompass. Everything that you would use in construction, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know. So, uh, that's true. You know, if you're going to build a building, you got to have going to have a certain amount of metal in it. You're going to have a certain amount of wood. You're going to mm-hmm. have glass, glass for windows uh, and stuff. So it's kind of like I like kind of seeing how they all come together. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so it'll be, you know, not everything I'll do, but it, pa- pa- almost everything I'll do because I've got some metal. I've found them on the side of the road. Some. Uh, old fire pits that people mm-hmm. have thrown out which I think would make kind of interesting coffee tables mm-hmm. so, uh, so we'll see we'll see, we'll see yeah. what happens with them so this has been great yeah yeah we're about to have to close up shop yeah. but we All really right. appreciate you coming on yeah. hey well thank you guys so much for uh Having me come and just throw all my junk out of people. <laughs> so, Stories so, are always welcome. So. Yeah, we're glad you get you, you got to come on here. So, 
We really appreciate it. All righty. Thank you all so much. Signing out.